He has bridged the gap that separated us, Lord. He has removed the separating barrier, the wall, the curtain, Lord. And we thank you that we can come to you freely in the name of Jesus, Lord. And this morning we gather in Jesus' name as your children and we long to hear from you, Lord. We ask that you would speak to us from your living word, Lord. Speak to us a living message and let it touch our hearts, Lord. Let our hearts burn. Let there be a fire stirred up within our bones to live out your word, to put these things into practice that you, have, that you have spoken to us. So Lord, we ask that you give us ears to hear this morning the message that you would speak to your church. And we pray that in Jesus' precious and powerful name. Amen. You know, there are a lot of people who start things, but there, there are very few people who finish things. And there are even fewer people who finish things well. You know, in Pyongyang, North Korea, stands the world's tallest hotel and it is unfinished it has been it was construction began on this hotel in 1987 it towers over the city of Pyongyang but it's never been occupied it's completely unfinished Budapest Hungary uh, actually has the oldest unfinished public works project in the world it's a subway line called uh, the, the Metro Line 4 and it has been under construction since 1972. And there are places like that picture all over the city of Budapest where they've started but just haven't really finished and there really is no projected finish date in sight anytime soon. It is the oldest public works project still under construction. There's a national monument in Scotland. <clears throat> now the national monument in Scotland in Edinburgh, it's known uh, by the nickname Scotland's disgrace and Edinburgh's folly. It was intended to be a memorial to the fallen Scottish soldiers of uh, um, certain wars and it was designed to be a copy, like a modern copy of the Parthenon in Athens. But construction began in 1826 but it stopped in 1829 when they ran out of money and it has stood less than halfway finished since that time. And today we're going to be looking at the final days of a man named Jacob. He's also known by the name that God gave him, which is Israel. Now Jacob is part of this family line, which the Bible starts in Genesis and it leads us up to the Messiah. This is the family line which will eventually lead us to Jesus. And, and what we see in Jacob is a man who did not start his life very well. The beginning of his life, as we've seen, was filled with folly. But at one point in his life, uh, Jacob met God and that changed the direction of his life his life changed radically he became a worshiper of God he, he entered into a relationship with God and the whole path and direction of his life changed in a major way but even as a believer what we saw in J Jacob's life is that he was far from perfect he made some pretty serious mistakes he made big mistakes as a father he made huge mistakes as a husband he wasn't exactly a success in everything that he did, even as a believer. But here's the thing that we see in this final section where we read about the final days of Jacob's life is this. He finishes well. And that is so important. It is so important to finish well. As, as Jeff was saying earlier, not everybody does. And my hope as we study these, these last days of Jacob today is that we would be inspired by this story, that we would be people who finish well. You know, Paul the Apostle compares the Christian life to a race. You may not feel like it, but you are in a race, is what he says. And it's more like a marathon. And, you know, uh, being in a race, what that means is that there's a finish line. 
And Paul the Apostle talks about that. He says, there's a finish line. We all run with the hope and the goal to attain the prize, which means we all want to reach the finish line. That's the goal. But the fact is that not everybody who starts a race reaches the finish line. And some of us who've, who've walked with the Lord for some time, we've noticed that. There have been people who started the race with us, but they're not in the race anymore, unfortunately. They're, we've seen people who haven't reached the finish line. And we need to look at Jacob's life and realize how important this is, how significant this is, that this man, despite his failures, he finishes well. Ecclesiastes verse, chapter 7, verse 8 says this, Better is the end of a thing than the beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. You know, in many areas of our lives, it's really easy to start things with a lot of enthusiasm, right? But it's a whole different thing altogether to carry on what you have begun and actually finish it well. And my desire for us as Christians, as those who, who bear the name of Christ, is that we would be people who finish well. In every area of our life, in our walk with God, let us be people who finish well. In the responsibilities that we take on, in the ministries that we take on, let us not just begin with enthusiasm, but let us finish well. In our marriages that we've begun, in the marriages that some of you have yet to begin, but that you will begin, anybody can start a marriage. But let us be people who, by the grace of God, finish those marriages well. In raising kids, let us be people who finish well. You know, I believe that two of the greatest needs that we have in the world today, two of the greatest needs that, we, that the church has today are these. Number one, we need people of faith. But just as importantly, number two, we need faithful people. We need people of faith, but just as much so, we also need faithful people. You know, we need people of faith. One of my favorite subjects to study and to teach is church history. I had the opportunity in Europe for, for years to be able to teach courses on church history. I, I would love to have the opportunity to do that here at Whitefields at some time. But one thing that church history teaches us is that our, our heritage as Christians is walking in faith. It's taking steps of faith. That is our heritage. When people have walked in faith, when people have obeyed the call of God and have stepped out, taken steps of faith, following the leading of the Holy Spirit, that is when the world has been changed. That is when the world has been impacted with the, with the changing power of the gospel. And that is our heritage as Christians. That, that's our inheritance, right? That's, the, that's one of the pressing needs in the church today. We need people of faith. We need to become people of faith. You know, I love this uh, quote from William Carey. I don't know if you've ever heard of William Carey. He was in the late 18th century and early 19th century. He was a poor British shoemaker. But he became known as the father of the modern mission movement. And he had a very famous saying. He said this, expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. He's a man of faith. He said, expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. But just as much as we need people of faith, we also need faithful people. Here's what I've noticed that for some people, it's much easier to step out in faith than it is to be faithful in continuing what they've begun. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. Uh, during my time as a missionary, I saw this countless times, right? I, I would see a lot of people, groups of people, enthusiastically stepping out in faith. 
But oftentimes it was, it was a flash in the pan. It didn't last very long. There was a lot of hype, a lot of excitement. They stepped out in faith. And, and honestly, they probably did things, they left things behind that many people wouldn't be willing to do. But they did not have the impact that they could have had because they were not faithful in what they began in faith. And I, and I really do believe that. For some people, it's very easy for them to take a step of faith, to do something which seems radical, but they don't realize how incredibly radical it is to be faithful in continuing what you've done. That's how you have a deep impact, is by being faithful in what you've begun. What I believe that God desires for us all, all is here, all, what I believe that God desires for all of us here as believers, what he desires to accomplish in us, in our lives, is that we would be both of these things, that we would be both people of faith and that we would be faithful people. That's, that's part of maturity, to be both. One thing you learn as you study the history of Christianity is that a lot of the people who made the greatest impact for Christ, the reason their impact was great was not only because they made incredible steps of faith, but because they were incredibly faithful. William Carey, the man I just mentioned a minute ago, he was a missionary. He went to India in 1793. And it was kind of unprecedented, the kind of thing that he wanted to do. That's why he's called the father of modern missions. He had a goal. His goal was to convert people to Christianity, establish a church, and translate the Bible into their local languages. Now that seems pretty common to us today, but you got to understand that this was pretty uncommon for the time that he lived in. So he got on a boat, took his family, went to India, and arrived there in 1793. And it wasn't until the year 1800 that he had his first convert. Seven years, seven years of preaching the gospel and nobody's interested. Seven years, this is his full-time job, right? Being a missionary, this is what he does. For seven years, pounding his head against the wall, preaching the gospel and nobody responded. Until the year 1800, he had his first convert. And it wasn't just a flood of converts after that. It was a long, hard road. He, he, here's another thing that he did. During that seven years, he spent all his time trying to learn the various languages of India. And he translated the Bible into those languages, the New Testament. Well, he had finished working on this translation of the New Testament into three Indian languages. This took him years and years of work, right? He had to learn the alphabet. He had to learn all kinds of stuff. So he takes his work to the printer and he gets it printed with his own money. And he starts distributing these scriptures. Well, he comes to find out that all this work he put in, it's pretty much useless because his translations were completely incomprehensible. He had just copied words out of the dictionary for years, copying the New Testament, but it was grammatically, it was totally incomprehensible. He had wasted years of his life, in a sense, translating these scriptures because they were useless. But here's what the history tells us about William Carey, was that he was so stubborn that he refused to give up. And in the end, William Carey did end up having a very big impact in that part of India that he was in. He's considered a hero. They put him on their postage stamps today in India. And he ended up seeing hundreds of people convert to Christianity. Hundreds of people come to know the Lord. He did establish a church from those believers. And finally, he did get the Bible translated into those local languages. And he ended up dying in India. You know, he spent decades there. 
But here's the great need we have, and we see this in William Carey. He was a man of faith, and he was a very faithful man. And I'm telling you, that's why he had a deep impact. It was the Spirit of God partnering with this man's willingness to take a step of faith and this man's willingness to faithfully walk in what God had called him to do. That's what God wants to make us. People of faith who step out, who are willing to expect great things from God and attempt great things for God, and he wants to make us faithful people who will walk faithfully in those things that he's called us into. People who don't just start things with a lot of enthusiasm, but people who see things through and finish them well. And that's the sentiment of the author of the letter to the Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 12. He says this in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily encumbers and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. What he's saying here is this. We are running a race Friends, we're running a race, and that means that there is a finish line. And we want to make it to that finish line. And that means that we want to get rid of everything which might prevent us from making it to that finish line, which might hinder us from making it to the finish line. That's why we want to lay all aside all the sin which just trips us up and weighs us down, and which hinders our potential from reaching that finish line. He says we keep our eyes on Jesus because he is both the author and the finisher of our faith. He is one who finished what he came to do. He saw it through to completion. How glad we are that he did that, right? He didn't just get excited about saving us, but then he also carried it through to completion. And that's our motivation to finish well also. Jesus finished well for us. He came to save us. He endured the cross, as terrible as it was. And he will carry you through He will see you through to the finish line as long as you continue in that race. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, Paul says this very profound statement. He says, friends, work out your salvation. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work it out. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now that's interesting, right? Because what's he saying here? He's saying that we need to work out our own salvation. But he's also saying that God will work in us to see our salvation through to completion. And the question is, is he saying here that we need to be faithful to God to see this through to completion? Or is he saying that God will be faithful to us to carry this out to completion? Which one is it? It's both. That's the the beauty of the paradox of that statement. It's both. It's the point of this verse. It's the point of the verse that we read in Hebrews chapter 12. Paul's saying, work out your own salvation. Be faithful to God. Lay aside every hindrance and run the race with endurance and make it to the finish line. But he's also saying this, and God is working in you and God is faithful to you. God is both the author and the finisher of your faith. It's not one or the other. It's both. And that's the beauty of the Christian life. It's this life lived, walking with God, following Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's a race that we run, but it is God who empowers and enables us to reach the finish line, 
to run and finish well. If we will simply stay in the race, keep putting one foot in front of the other, he will see us through to the finish line. Now here at Genesis, we see the final years of Jacob's life. If you got your Bibles, follow along from chapter 46. We're going to cover a few chapters today. So please do follow along as we go through these chapters. Here's where we're at in Jacob's life. <coughs> Jacob was born into a believing family. His grandpa had gotten saved. His dad had been a believer. His dad had had a relationship with God. But then along came Jacob and his brother Esau. And although they were born into a believing family and had believing parents, they grew up knowing about God. But what we see in their story is that they didn't have a relationship with God themselves. Sure, they knew a lot about God. They knew a lot about the God of their fathers. They knew a lot about the God of Abraham, their grandfather. But they didn't have a relationship with this God. He wasn't their God. And that's really important for us to recognize. It's actually two things, really. Number one, there is a difference between knowing about God and knowing God personally, having a relationship with him. You know, it's kind of like Hollywood, right? There's a difference between knowing about Brad Pitt and actually knowing Brad Pitt, right? Because there are a lot of housewives and, you know, I guess probably some guys who are into it too who, who read, uh, read tabloid magazines. And you can learn a lot about Brad Pitt, right? You can learn about uh, Brad Pitt's favorite color and, you know, what Brad Pitt had for lunch yesterday and, uh, you know, what his, uh, how much Brad... Pit ways this week and all this kind of stuff but that's not the same thing as actually knowing Brad Pitt and having a relationship with him because Brad Pitt doesn't know who you are right unless you actually know him and that's how it is with God uh, although he does know you there's a difference between knowing stuff about God and actually having a relationship with God you know that's actually who I was growing up personally I went to a, a Lutheran school until the eighth grade and in this Lutheran school, I had to memorize Bible verses. I had to learn about God. And, uh, and that was all good, actually. And after I did become a Christian, it, it was actually very useful for me. But when I was there and I was learning all this stuff about God, I did not know God. I didn't even claim to be a Christian. I didn't have a relationship with him. And when I was only, uh, when I was 16 years old, I had a friend who was a Christian, and, uh, and she showed me this place in the Gospel of Matthew, where Jesus is speaking to this big crowd of people, right? It's part of the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And this friend of mine, she asked me, she just kind of put me on the spot and asked me, is that you? Are you this person who knows stuff about God? but you don't actually have a relationship with God. If you would meet him, he would say, I never really knew you. And, and it was through that conversation that I realized that actually I didn't have a relationship with God and I realized that was actually a problem, right? I knew some information about the Bible, but I didn't have a living personal relationship with God as, as my God, as my Father, as my Savior. And the second thing that this reminds us of is that the line into heaven is single file, right? 
one at a time. I do believe that God wants to save families. You see that in the book of Acts. You see that God saves families, but what God's word teaches us that each member of that family needs to have their own saving faith, their own relationship with Jesus Christ, their own faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross for them. Because here's what we see. There were these people in the Old Testament who knew God without a doubt, but not all their kids walked with God. Right? Adam and Eve, they knew God. They walked with God. They had a relationship with God without a doubt. But they had a few kids who did walk with God, and they had one son who definitely did not walk with God. Isaac, he has two sons. They grow up knowing about God. But they didn't know God until Jacob had an encounter with God and it changed his life completely. But Esau, he never knows God, it seems like. He never walks with God. And here's the point. No one is born a Christian. You have to be born again a Christian, right? Everyone needs their own relationship with God. And we see that in the life of Jacob. So at one point, God shows up in Jacob's life and reveals himself to Jacob, and it changes the course of his life completely. He starts worshiping God. He starts obeying God. He starts following God and letting God lead him. But he's, he was certainly far from perfect. He had four wives and a ton of kids, 12 sons. And he was not a great husband, he didn't treat his wives the way that they should have been treated. He didn't love his kids equally. And he sinned against them by doing this. And this caused a lot of turmoil in his family. It ended up causing a lot of problems and a lot of grief in Jacob's life as well. And at, at one point, some of Jacob's sons, you remember the story, we've been studying about it, Joseph, they get bitter because Jacob is showing favoritism to this one son. So they sell him as a slave to get rid of him. And they tell their dad, Jacob, that Joseph has died. Joseph, of course, wasn't dead. In fact, by the providence of God, Joseph had become the second most powerful person in Egypt, second only to Pharaoh himself. And after 20 years, Jacob finds out that his son Joseph is still alive. Can you imagine that, you parents? Think that you're, you lost a child and then 20 years later to find out that they're still alive. So Joseph sends for Jacob to come and move to Egypt with him because there's a famine in Canaan, but Joseph is in Egypt and he has food and he has money and he wants to take care of his dad and his family. So Genesis 46 begins this way. Jacob is going down to Egypt. He's packed up all his stuff and he's going down to Egypt, but he stops at one point at this place called Beersheba. Now this is a place where his fathers had offered sacrifices to God and there he stops to worship God and to offer sacrifice and to pray and God speaks to Jacob there and says don't be afraid to go down to Egypt this is my will for you I have a plan for you now here's what's what's interesting if you remember back to previous chapters of Genesis this kind of scene happened before this isn't the first time we've seen this where there was a famine in the land of Canaan and to escape the famine the, the people of Israel, right, this is Abraham, Isaac, they go down to Egypt to escape the famine because there's food down there. But while they're in Egypt, they get into all kinds of trouble. God even speaks at certain points and says, don't go down to Egypt, even though there's a famine. So here we got Jacob, and he's kind of wondering, like, I'm kind of just replaying the same thing that's happened for generations in my family. There's a famine in our land. There's food in Egypt. So I go down there. But God didn't want my fathers to go down there. So I love what he does. He stops. He says, before I go down to Egypt, I'm going to stop and I'm going to seek the Lord. 
And he asks the Lord, Lord, do you want me to go down to Egypt? I don't want to go down there, Lord, if you don't want me down there. I'll rather starve in Canaan than go down to Egypt if you don't want me in Egypt, Lord. He says, I know my dad and my grandpa, they sinned against you when they went to Egypt. Lord, I don't want to do that. I'd rather starve than do that. Just speak to me, Lord. If you want me to stay here, I'll stay. I think that's incredible. And so God speaks to to Jacob and he says, yeah, go ahead. Go down to Egypt. I have a plan for you. I'm going to prosper you down there. That's where I want you to be. You know, what an incredible example for us that when we make decisions that we don't just make them based on what looks good practically, what adds up on our spreadsheet, right? He doesn't just look on what makes the best sense, what looks like the best move practically. He wants God to speak to him. He wants God to direct him. And God does. See, God didn't want Abraham and Isaac to go down to Egypt, but he does want Jacob to go down to Egypt. And the point is, again, don't just make your decisions based on what seems best practically, but seek the Lord. Seek a word from the Lord. Seek direction from him on which direction he wants you to go. So Jacob packs up all of his family, all his possessions, and they move down to Egypt. And Joseph comes to meet him halfway. And after 20 years... 20 plus years of thinking that his son is dead, Jacob is finally reunited with his son Joseph. And you can imagine how emotional this must have been. It tells us that they embraced each other and that they wept for a good while. Joseph tells his brothers he's got a plan for the family. He's got a plan for how they can secure the best land in Egypt for their families. Egyptian society was a caste system. And on the lowest rung of this caste system were, guess who? Shepherds. You know, uh, people who were animal herders, which is what this family is. And Jacob, or sorry, Joseph knows that. And he wants to use this to his family's advantage. He knows that the Egyptians look down on people like them. They kind of see them as kind of like hillbillies, rednecks, people you know, that you see on TV that you want to stay far away from, right? He says, we can use this to our advantage. We're just going to go up to him and we're going to tell him, hey, you know, by the way, we're a bunch of shepherds. We're a bunch of rednecks. You probably don't want to have us as neighbors. So why don't you just give us the nice part of land? Goshen is kind of like the Estes Park of Egypt, right? It's kind of a bit outside of town, a little bit secluded, but the nicest part of the land, right? And I'm kind of reading between the lines here, but this is kind of how I imagine it. I imagine that since this is Joseph's plan, he's going to look for like the most hillbilly backwoods cousins and, and brothers he's got. And he's going to get them and he's going to say, all right, guys, just be yourselves. And let's go meet Pharaoh. I'll introduce you. And they're like, hey, you Pharaoh, you know, nice to meet you. I, Joseph says that we're going to be neighbors, you know, all right. We get some moonshine and we get our corncob pipe and we can just be neighbors, sit on our porch on our couch all the time, you know? And, uh, and so what happens is exactly, Joseph's a smart guy. He knows what he's doing. So Joseph, you know, he, he, uh, they do this and they do the whole thing. And, and what does Pharaoh say? He says, yeah, hey, nice to meet you guys. Hey, you know what? We got some nice land outside of town and you guys can go live there and you just be off by yourselves, all right? We don't have to be neighbors. We, we see each other from time to time. So Joseph's a smart guy. He secures for them the land of Goshen, the, the really the nicest part of Egypt. It's a fertile land. So in, in another interesting thing we see here in chapter 47, Joseph introduces his dad, Jacob, to Pharaoh. And so, uh, so try to picture this. This is really an incredible thing that happens here. Jacob, this old man, again, a shepherd, which is seen as like really the lowest possible rung of society in Egypt. He's just this poor man, 
He's had to leave his home because there's no jobs, there's no money, there's no future. He comes, he's been on a long journey. He comes and stands before Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world. And what does he do? He says that he blesses him. He puts his hand out. He says, Pharaoh, I'm gonna pray for you. You know, he puts his hand on him and he prays for him. That's crazy, right? This is so wild that this old man, Jacob, who knows God. And then you got this other man, adorned in gold, who believes that he is God. And Joseph, it says, Joseph brought in Pharaoh, his father, or brought in Jacob, his father, and stood him before Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. This poor old shepherd man who, who knows the true and living God, he reaches out his hand and prays blessing upon this man who thinks that he is God. And it seems that Pharaoh received this blessing. And, and that's one of the things that we see that's so important to Jacob at the end of his life. He, he begins just laying hands on people and blessing them and praying for them in the name of the Lord. And what we see in the next few chapters, in chapter 48 and 49, is that this is what he does with his kids and his grandkids. He lays his hands on them and he blesses them and he speaks the word of God over them. He hasn't always been a good dad. That's what we've seen for the last couple chapters he hasn't always been the spiritual leader that God wanted him to be in his household but here at the end of his life he's finishing well he's walking in his calling he is becoming an ambassador for God he's becoming the spiritual leader of his family that God wants him to be he's becoming the dad and the grandpa who speaks the word of God into his kids lives and lays hands on him and pronounces blessing on them he's finishing well now check out what Jacob does in chapter 48, uh, starting in verse 8. It says this, When Israel saw Joseph's son, he said, Who are these? Joseph said to his father, These are my sons whom God has given me here. And he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age so that he could not see, so Joseph brought them near him. And he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand towards Israel's right hand, and brought them near. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Manasseh, or sorry, on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger. And he laid his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys, and in them let my name be carried on, and the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Jacob, Israel, what, when he sees Joseph's son, check out what he does. He lays his hands on them and blesses them. And not only that, I love what he does. He shares his story of his experience of God's grace. And here's his testimony. He says, God has been my shepherd all the days of my life. And he says, he redeemed me from all evil. That's his story of his experience with God. It isn't a story of his faithfulness to God. It's a story of God's grace and faithfulness to him. He says, God has been good to me, boys. And if you read on in, in the next part, he tells Joseph, God has been with me, and Joseph, God will be with you. He shares this story, and he lays hands on them and blesses them, and he crosses his hands. He puts his right hand on Ephraim, 
and his left hand on Manasseh. And if you read the, the end of the chapter, what happens is that Joseph is upset by this because it's, it's not supposed to happen that way. The older son is supposed to get the right hand, which, is, which symbolizes strength and power and prominence and preeminence. And Joseph actually grabs his father's hands and tries to switch them, but, jo but Jacob says, no, I'm doing this on purpose. Even though Ephraim's the younger son, he's going to be counted as the firstborn. And what's interesting is if you read on in the Old Testament, there are places where the prophets refer to Ephraim as the firstborn. And this is a theme that runs through Genesis, that, that man looks at the outward things, but God looks at the heart. And God, he's a, he's a free-range God. He's not tied down. He, he doesn't play by our rules. He makes the rules. He, he does what he wants. He acts sovereignly. He chooses the weak and foolish things of this world and works in the greatest way through those in order to bring himself greater glory. So if you ever feel like you're weak, if you ever feel like there are a ton of people who are way more qualified than you are to be used by God, well, you know what that means? That means that you are a prime candidate. God loves to use the weak things of this world. He, he loves to use the foolish things of this world. I was just talking to Jared before service about how, you know, I was, I was 20 years old when I started the first church I started. I, I look back now and I'm thinking that I was like the most not qualified person possible. You know what I mean? I was naive. I was green. I was wet behind the ears. But that's what God loves to do. He loves to use people who who are foolish in the world's eyes, who are weak in the world's eyes to accomplish his purposes. And after, after blessing Joseph's sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, in chapter 49, we read this. Jacob called his sons and said, gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come. In this next chapter, what happens, Joseph gathers his 12 boys to his side and to each of them individually, he speaks into their lives and he prophesies over them and he tells them, each of them, specifically who they are and who they are gonna become. Dads, you know how powerful that is? That's huge. Right now, th these boys are just a big family, but they are gonna become a nation. Jacob is thinking about his legacy. What's he gonna leave behind when he's gone? And we read, about the, we read this at the end of the chapter in verse 28. All these are the 12 tribes of Israel. And this is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. Until now, these boys have been sons and brothers, but now they are referred to for the first time as the 12 tribes of Israel. And these blessings that Jacob gives them, they're blessings which, which speak of not just who they are, but who they will become and who their tribe, their descendants, their legacy will become. Reuben, although he's the firstborn, he loses his birthright because he sinned against his father, against his family in chapter 35 when he's, he slept with his stepmother. Simeon and Levi, they're the next in line in order of birth. But they also are disqualified from receiving the birthright because they have blood on their hands. They've committed murder. That was back in chapter 34. And what this reminds us of is that, of course, we, we can be forgiven, but there is such a thing as being disqualified from certain things. And here, these, these first three oldest sons, they've been disqualified from carrying on this redemptive family line. And so that brings us to Judah, number four. Because his older three brothers are disqualified, the birthright now goes to Judah. And what that means is that Judah will be the one who carries on the messianic line, the family line which leads us to Jesus. 
And, and in verse 10, we read something so significant for the whole scope of the Bible. It says this in 49 verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. Now Shiloh is, is a name for the Messiah. Jacob is telling Judah that the Messiah will come through his family. And truly when Jesus comes, he comes as the lion of the tribe of Judah. He does descend from that tribe. And here's the point I want you to see. This whole book has been about Jesus. From the beginning till now, the end of the book. It's about Jesus. The whole book of Genesis. It started off by telling us why Jesus had to come. First, who he was, his person, and we see that in creation. But then why we need Jesus, because we're sinners. Because the world has fallen under the curse of sin and death. And it finishes with the promise that Jesus is indeed coming and God will indeed finish what he started in order that we might be saved from our sins and redeemed and have eternal life. And here's the point. God has a mission. It's this monumental plan to redeem the world from the curse of sin. And God is going to see it through to completion. He's going to finish well what he began. He's the author and finisher of our faith. And Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, he says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God is faithful to finish what he started. And this is how Jacob's life ends in verse 33. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered unto his people. You know, not everybody in the Bible finishes well. Not everybody reaches the finish line. Perhaps the greatest example of this is Solomon. He started off so well, but he didn't finish well. He started off well as a young man. He was commended by the Lord because he sought wisdom rather than riches and power. And he walked with the Lord and he loved the Lord and he used the resources he had. He gave them to the Lord. He built a temple for the Lord in Jerusalem. But later on in life, Saul began to disregard God's word. He started accumulating wives for himself. And, and eventually those wives who were pagan women, they, they turned him away from God and he too became an idol worshiper. It's a sad story. It's a tragic end to the life of a man who started so well, who did so much good. Another example in the Bible is a man named Demas. And you can read about him at the end of some of Paul's letters, like Philemon and Colossians. And in Paul's final letter, at the end of his life, which was 2 Timothy, the last letter that he wrote, he says that Demas has abandoned him. Demas has left the ministry. You get the impression that Demas no longer walks with the Lord. He started out well. He was involved in ministry. He was serving the Lord, but guess what? He didn't make it to the finish line. And that is tragic. And here's what we see at the end of Jacob's life. He finishes well. The last years of his life are characterized by seeking the Lord, blessing people in the name of the Lord, and sharing his testimony of God's grace to him. And he leaves behind this powerful legacy for his kids and his grandkids to see and walk in. And I want to encourage you today, and I'll finish here. I want to encourage you and I want to challenge you that as you look at the end of Jacob's life, let us be people of faith and let us be faithful people. Both those things are so important. May we, by God's grace, be people who finish well in our walk with God 
in every area of our life. May we keep our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, the one who on the cross of Calvary declared, it is finished and it is he who will see us through to the finish line as we continue to walk in step with him. Amen? Let's stand and pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you finished well what you begun. And Lord, that you have promised that as we keep in step with you, Lord, that you will see us through to the finish line. Lord, I pray for everyone in here today. I pray that, Lord, everyone in here would make it to the finish line of this race. Lord, I pray that we would finish well the, our walk with you, our life. Lord, that we have finished well the ministries that we've begun. Lord, that every marriage in here, Lord, that it would finish well by your grace, by your strength. Thank you, Lord, that you provide that grace for us because we can't do it on our own. We are insufficient, but Lord, you are all sufficient. We pray for all the parents in here, Lord, let them finish well in raising their kids, that their kids might know you and walk with you, that they might leave behind a godly legacy. And we pray all these things, Lord, only by your strength. We thank you for the gospel. Thank you that you died for us, that you arose again, that you redeemed us, that you love us, that you pour out grace upon us. Lord, let this truth burn within our hearts that we might reach the finish line by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.